Weiler. I'm Forrest Coleman. And I'm Erica Senor. And welcome to Brains and Bourbon, a show about cocktails and neuroscience, brought to you by Neurite West. This week, our guest is Egle Chikanavichute, a fifth-year graduate student in Marion Buckwalter's lab. Thanks for joining us today, Egle. Thank you for inviting me. How impressed with Nick are you about the pronunciation of your name? Extremely, I must say. I can even spell it. I am it. too. That's my fun party trick. So do you know this girl, Egle? I can spell her name. So, Egle, we have here the makings of your favorite cocktail. Can you describe what it is and how you make it? Okay, so it is Sazerac. And it has rye whiskey and bitters and, most importantly, absinthe. And it's my connection to the wonderful southern cuisine, which is my favorite cuisine in the world. Plus, half of my family now is from the south as well. And I especially like the city of New Orleans. So here we go. Sazerac, you started with a rye. There's a generous helping of rye. Then you add some uh, simple syrup, which is apparently really here just to cut everything else that is very bitter and very alcoholic. Then you add some bitters. Then you add as much absinthe as you want. And I made uh, Sazeracs for all three of you today and gave you about a teaspoon worth of absinthe each. And I am going to get about two tablespoons worth of absinthe <laughs> for myself because I love this stuff. And it will help me get inspired. This is your European roots coming out. Yep. And then finally, you add some lemon, lemon twist. There we go. Some more lemon. And you finish with ice. Okay. Good. Here we go. Here's the proper Sazerac. Cheers. 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 Thank you. Mm. How is that? Absinthe enough? Excellent. Excellent. Perfect amount of absinthe. <laughs> so when we were in New Orleans for SFN this past year, was this the first time you had a Sazerac? Uh, it was the first time I had a Sazerac, yes. Uh-huh. And I loved it. So does it remind you of New Orleans now every time you drink it? Yes, and I really want to go back to New Orleans at some point. Mm. So, Egle, you've had quite a year. Mm-hmm. You got married in September. You received your green card this spring. You're uh-huh. graduating in the fall. You uh-huh. just accepted a postdoctoral position at Berkeley. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> Particularly congratulations about the green card. It's extremely exciting. Could you talk a little bit about what it was like growing up in Lithuania and why you wanted to come to the U.S.? Basically, in Lithuania, I knew I wanted to do some sort of medicine or science. And so up to the year 2003, higher education was still extremely corrupt to the extent that you could actually bribe your professors in the university to get better grades or you would get better grades in the school of medicine if your parents were famous doctors. So I didn't like that. I didn't like the system and I still like the science. And I lucked out going to an international baccalaureate program where I learned everything basically based on the same curriculum that also exists in the U.S., And I really wanted to continue the same type of science learning based on experiments, based on coming up with your own questions, based on uh, doing a lot of independent work and a lot of lab work. So I really tried to get somewhere out of the country. 
And Lithuania wasn't EU yet, so I couldn't apply to UK or any other EU country where uh, most of Lithuanians go now. So instead, basically, my only chance was the US. And of course, I didn't have money for it. But luckily, if you get into a good enough and rich enough school in the US, they're going to cover you. So get full financial aid. So that's what I was betting on my first year when I applied right out of high school in my senior year of high school. And I didn't get in anywhere but full financial aid, which meant for me, I couldn't go anywhere. So then I took a year off, which is how I described it in all of my college applications. Well, for me, it was going to School of Medicine in Lithuania and working as a teacher of chemistry and applying to 18 colleges. And yes, I finally got into some places, including Harvard, which gave me full ride, which was where I went eventually. But really, I was quite desperate, especially when I started going to School of Medicine and I realized that, oh, yes, it is every bit as corrupt as I was afraid it would be. Really Do you have a particular out. story of corruption in Lithuania that you might... So a good story of corruption, not in a university setting, but in general. So what happened is my um, husband was visiting Lithuania and we are already standing in the airport and my brother just thought he was supposed to just drive his car into parking lot, comes rushing to the airport being like, Mom, can I get some money out of your card because I forgot my wallet? And he needs a specific amount of money, which is about $50 worth, because he was stopped by the police. And of course, the police wouldn't just like make you pay a fine. They want a bribe. And they want a bribe of specific amount. So you drive him back to the airport in the police car so that he could get the money out of ATM because it just so happened he forgot his wallet. Then he gets out, pays the bribe. Everything goes fine. Does he still get a ticket? Nope. There's no ticket. That's the way it works. And it's getting less and less. This is already a relatively rare event. It's already getting better. But 10 years ago, it was significantly worse. And this was completely normal. And still paying a cop instead of a ticket is one thing. But paying a professor in med school for a grade is entirely another. Because you can imagine those doctors will one day actually be treating patients. So that's what I was trying to run away from. And the other big thing that I was trying to run away from is learning everything by memorization. Sort of imagine learning anatomy by memorization, but you really shouldn't be learning something like inorganic chemistry or medical physics, biophysics, by memorizing things. But most professors expected you to memorize everything and regurgitate it on the final and not ask questions in class because that would undermine their respectability as professors. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine what your life would be like now had you stayed in Lithuania and continued in the medical school? I would probably be not be in Lithuania, actually. You can't imagine any scenario um, where you're I would probably Lithuania. have left sooner oh. or later. I was fairly determined. Uh-huh. I knew that if I wouldn't be able to leave for college, I would be able to leave as some sort of student exchange program. And we didn't know at that time that Lithuania would be in EU really soon. But in 2005, I joined EU and I became citizen of the EU, basically treated in all the countries equally. So mm-hmm. I would have just left then. So what are some of the challenges you've faced in the United States not being a citizen? And what are you most looking forward to now that you are a green card holder? I'm a real person. I can be employed. I can be unemployed if I have to be. I can be. I can actually apply for government grants, including all the N grants. So NRSA, NSF, everything. I can get my own funding, which was a pretty big problem. For example, choosing grad schools and choosing labs. So um, I got into every single private grad school that I applied to and not into any public grad school. So Mm -hmm. 
no UCSF, yes on Stanford, and so on. And I was basically told there that while all of our money is NIH and we are not going to accept any international students because they can't get any NIH funding. I mean, same thing for postdoc funding. For people that are applying for faculty positions, it's much worse because you want to apply for K-99 and for R01, which you can't apply for if you're not a permanent resident either. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that when you were admitted to Harvard, you were admitted with full funding for your education. Mm-hmm. What did that mean for you? So it covered my tuition fees, room and board, and no loans. I couldn't go to any place that basically asked me for any kind of loans because my family didn't have any kind of, didn't have enough money for any bank to give me a loan without an American co-signer. And I didn't know a single person in the U.S. There was no way I could find anybody as a co-signer. And we didn't have enough money to the extent that when Dartmouth, which for some unknown reason was my dream school back then, offered me admission and financial aid and asked for $3,000 of parental contribution a year, like there was no way we could have that. Like it was actually like far above the amount of money that we had at that time. Mm-hmm. Now things are a little better because I'm away and independent, mm-hmm. partially. But having a full ride at Harvard was wonderful. It still meant I had to find money to pay for things like my plane tickets back to Lithuania, or right. my clothes, or you know my parties, or anything else, both <laughs> frivolous and important. Yeah. My textbooks. Uh-huh. So, Oh, your textbooks weren't covered. Parties and textbooks. No, my textbooks were not covered. Oh, wow. And That's a huge expense. So I came to Harvard with $500 in my pocket, and I thought I would help the richest person in the world. And then I saw the prices of, um, let's say, bed linen and textbooks and other things that my roommates wanted to buy for the room, such as this couch. And I'm like, oh, this couch costs $200. Okay, well, that's $70 out of my pocket. I'm being left with less and less and less and less. And then I got a job the first week. It was job? I was working in a library. I basically went to the library and said, I need a job here. I need to work here. And mm-hmm. they gave me a job. Luckily, halfway through my first year, I got a job in the lab, which was extremely helpful. It was the only way I could do science. What was the process of getting the lab job? So there was this program sponsored by HHMI. It's now called the Ideas Program, run by Professor Richard Losick, who's a really major molecular cellular biologist at Harvard. But I was like the second pilot here or something. And the idea was that uh, supporting people from underprivileged backgrounds to work in labs and just paying them for uh, 10 to 15 hours a week work in lab, whatever was the going rate for student pay at the university. And it was amazing because they were nationality blind, so international students and Americans could apply equally. And they actually looked at the financial situation of the students. So you could be underprivileged, not just based on, uh, for example, your race, but also based on your social status and your class and on your uh, financial need. Mm-hmm. Uh, so someone like me was basically heavily underprivileged, couldn't work in lab unless I was getting paid the whole time. And I actually got in. I passed the interview, joined a lab, and continued getting paid for the rest of my three and a half years there. Wow. And being able to work in lab, which was amazingly helpful when I applied to grad school. Mm-hmm. It sounds like you had a great time at, at Harvard. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've been sort of a, a polymath. I mean, you were on a, a team that dominated the competitive chemistry Olympiad in Lithuania for years. You went to Harvard, you worked in a neuroscience lab there, but you also studied archaeology and anthropology and Spanish. And then after college, you were admitted to Stanford's neuroscience program, but you took a year off to do social anthropology. In the Amazon, when you returned, you joined Marion Buckwalter's lab and you transformed into a neuroimmunologist. You've also been an extremely avid mentor and teacher. So you've done all of these things, and now you have said that you intend to make teaching a central part of your career. How do you keep all of this straight? And do these feel like competing interests or are they complementary in some way? 
they are competing until I test them one by one and then decide what I actually want to be in my uh, main career. So at Harvard, I was a um, neuroscience major, Spanish citation, which is basically a minor. And I took every single class that I could take was a uh, highish level anthro or archaeology because I really didn't know what to go to grad school for, neuroscience or anthro. Mm -hmm. So I figured I'd do this. I would apply for neuroscience, get in, defer admission for a year, and spend a year doing basically field research in social anthro, which is what I did by getting a grant from the same Harvard to work in Peru. After working there for a year, I decided I do not, in fact, want to do social anthro professionally because what's considered to be evidence is like not quite rigorous for my taste, I would much prefer to do, let's say, hard science with different uh, characteristics of uh, what's considered to be good evidence. And that's what I did. But I also fell in love with the idea of doing public health research. So I got myself to Stanford, deferred admission and everything. But my original plan at Stanford was to last two years, pass my quals, get a master's and leave and do public health. So I was pretty convinced about that. I'm always convinced about what I'm doing. It just changes. <laughs> so I was set on that. And also it would give me a visa and money, which is two things that we really needed the most to live anywhere, especially in the U.S., I guess, anywhere in the U.S., which is home anyway. Then in about two years at Stanford, I realized that, oh, first of all, I really like doing science. And I especially realized that during my quals, because I actually enjoyed the whole preparation of writing your own proposal and uh, giving talks, giving practice talks, hearing questions from professors, being like, oh, my God, I can debate something. Mm -hmm. They can actually contribute to it even a tiny bit to the discussion. And I liked it so much that uh, at the end of my quals, when I passed them, I was like, I don't want to do any public health. I want to stay here and spend spend my time talking about science and teaching science and writing about science and the grants or papers eventually. And then I started teaching and I really rediscovered my love of teaching science again. So what were you going to the Amazon to prove? There are two things. So what I was doing, I was basically studying the idea of uh, what's called a drug tourism, which is a lot of Western tourists go to the Amazon and they look for some sort of a shamanic enlightenment. And of course, there's plenty of all sorts of charlatans that are going to take the tourists and going to drug them out, regardless of what kind of condition the tourists might have that would prevent them from taking large doses of hallucinogens, regardless of anything else, of even knowing what kind of plants to mix up and feed the poor tourists. And that turns out to be pretty dangerous. So the professor that I was working with, uh, somebody from UC Irvine, was writing a book about that and wanted me to go out and basically interview everyone from the charlatans to the sort of more real and local community shamans and healers to the tourists, which was extremely interesting. And all of that came into the book. But at the same time, I was reading a lot of books about social anthro. And it's really surprising the stuff that actually gets in there, which really includes mostly uh, personal experiences of uh, one anthropologist or another that are presented as the objective truth which I did not like. So to that end, how did you go into the Amazon and decide what was a charlatan a shaman and a real shaman? Exactly. I did not like that. I mean, I did not like that I was making that kind of decision and uh -huh. then presenting it in somebody else's book, but, basically. So what did, what did you actually do? What was it? Did you have oh, a, did you have a, did you come do. up with a shaman test? 
in a way, I would actually talk to them about what they want in their in their ceremonies and what kind of questions they ask their clients and what kind of clients they have. Are they mostly the tourists or are they mostly their communities? And one of the interesting tests is that the real ones, the traditional um, belief about, let's say, taking any kind of hallucinogenic drink is that your um, patient or client has no reason to take it. It's the shaman that has to take it so that they can talk to the basically to the relevant spirits and come up with the idea of how to heal the person. Now, if you have the patient take it, that's irrelevant. <laughs> basically, that doesn't tell the patient anything about their own disease. So that is something that obviously you would only find in the more authentic uh, indigenous community or mestizo community shamans, and you wouldn't really find it in the more touristic part because the more touristic part would be, uh, well, of course, we invite all kinds of tourists and we give them everything they want and then uh, we uh, build a giant center with uh, swimming pools and with hammocks outside. And mm-hmm. I've totally seen all of those. Obviously. And then some tourists actually get into coma, which I've also seen happen, oh, wow. which was very interesting. So it's yeah. a, there's, there's a very, there was a crazy adventure for a year, which was fantastic, but I really was missing a lot of more hard science and I was missing the kind of questions that uh, biology can ask. And uh, I was really missing lab work too, so... Mm-hmm. So would you consider doing a follow-up on your shaman studies in New Orleans? Go back there? And, uh... <laughs> uh, well, I did go to voodoo shops, of course, uh-huh. and, uh, um, you know, checked out the local. I'm still pretty interested in general in um, the concept of healing in different religions and cultures, mm-hmm. but I will certainly would never follow any of that. I just interested in a purely intellectual perspective. And yes, I did go to New Orleans and looked up the voodoo shops. It was very important. So I think there was a book in a New York Times article that was like last year or maybe two years ago about neuroscience is all culturally defined. And, you know, he was talking about you know, the difference in uh, the rates of anorexia across different cultures and or about how, you know, potentially the way in which some, quote unquote, more primitive cultures would treat schizophrenia as if a demon had possessed somebody was in some ways more helpful to the schizophrenic patient in that they would... You know, it's viewed as an external factor, which is coming in and affecting the person. And then the community needs to sort of rally around that person to attack this external factor and support them, as opposed to the sort of more Western, you're crazy, authorization process that happens in the culture. Except that's not what happens. So uh, part of what I did is actually go to, um, let's say, small communities in the Andes. And I did a short stay and, let's say, social work in this orphanage that was run partially by local Peruvians and in part by German missionaries. And a lot of kids there had all kinds of mental developmental disorders. And the way they were treated by their families before they got into this orphanage, they all had families. The way they were treated by their families was completely abhorrent. It was... um, Basically, leaving the kid at home, sometimes tied up for hours at a day, for days at a time, it was completely terrifying. And sometimes those kids wouldn't even have anything that major. And that extended to both mental and physical disabilities. Now, of course, you don't see that in the mainland Peru, let's say, or like mainland any other country. You really have to go fairly, fairly deep into your non-Westernized part of the culture. So I think the idea that some schizophrenics are treated well means more that some people that are treated really well because they're the shamans happen to have some sort of disorder but generally people that have different disabilities are not treated well at all Mm. so that's what i experienced do we have shamans in our culture so the general idea and that is like 
has nothing to do with neuroscience. That's like my ba- my training in anthropology comes in. The general idea is shaman is somebody that is uh, acts like a bridge between two worlds. So you have your physical world and your spiritual world or whatever. And shaman is the type of person that can re-enter from one world to another at will during some sort of ritual and bring parts of one world to another. And you can make what you will of that and of the equivalent of that in our culture. I think generally all priests come under the same umbrella of whatever religion you choose. Obviously, New Agey religions are totally in there, but they call themselves shamans too, but that's far less interesting to think about. But really, any kind of religion, it's that idea. All right, well, let me try and say something controversial. Is a yoga teacher a, a, a shaman? Well, based on the one time I tried yoga, when I was <laughs> squishing myself into a hard position, or like muscles shaking and everything, and then my yoga teacher sneaks up behind me and says... Now concentrate your breathing behind your back and your energy towards the floor. I just plopped on the floor. I was like, concentrate what? And I thought it was very funny. I started laughing. I look at everybody else, and everybody else is quietly standing there and concentrating their energies towards the floor. I was like, okay, that is definitely... Not my kind of sport, thank you very much. <laughs> and save us probably, Shaoism is not exactly my kind of belief. It's just something that's interesting to study. <laughs> Yoga could be counted as that. But you enjoy climbing instead. Yes, I enjoy climbing and skiing and biking and all kinds of more adventurous and less uh, concentrate your energy sports. Well, you're never <laughs> supposed to concentrate your energy towards the floor in climbing. No. Exactly. <laughs> just go up. So you mentioned at the beginning that you initially were planning to leave Stanford with a master's and go into public health. Yep. And that you changed your mind. Was it partially the teaching that that convinced you to stay, at least short term? Well, it was the short term enjoyable part of what I was choosing. But in general, it was really the feeling of discussing science and coming up with new ideas for proposals. That's my favorite part. I don't really care about bench work. Somebody else can do the bench work as far as I'm concerned. I like to do everything else. The writing and the speaking and the presenting and the discussing of ideas. That's what I really like to do. And I didn't get to do it during my undergrad, really, because I was doing bench work for somebody else. And I didn't even get to do it as much during my rotations. But when I actually started preparing for quals, I was like, oh, that's this whole part of science. That's the real deal. And that was um, surprisingly enjoyable. How do you convey that same enthusiasm that you have to your students? I make them ask questions and come up with ideas. Mm-hmm. And it is not as easy as it may seem because you can't exactly stand in front of the classroom and say, so can you, can anybody here tell me what do you think, what in the circuit is wrong and give some house epilepsy? And you have a circuit on the board or something. No, everybody will look their hands at the floor, at the ceiling, wherever, except at you and will try very, very hard not to answer. Uh-huh. So you have to make them ask questions and come up with ideas. You have to say, okay, now I'm going to give you 30 seconds to talk to your neighbor and then you will have to tell me what is wrong with the circuit that's on the board and how it would give a mouse epilepsy. That They immediately start talking and then you can start calling on them and then the discussion starts. So that's part of it. Uh-huh. The other part is enthusiasm is contagious. Uh-huh. If you care about your subject and you actually are outgoing, you can really charm up your audience to some degree. And it's really important to try to tie it to something very 
realistic, basic kind of, if, you, if there's a disease, tell them some story about a disease. Um, I was giving a genetics talk in San Jose State about Huntington's, so about Huntington's disease gene. And basically one of the crazy, inter- most interesting stories is how Huntington was discovered in the small community in Venezuela. And you immediately start talking about the discovery story and basically what it meant to the community and what it meant to the rest of the scientific world. And that's when you get the feeling that everybody in the room is actually listening to you. So what's been the most surprising thing that you've learned about yourself or about students from the teaching experience that you've had? So in a way, a really surprising thing that I learned about myself is just how much I enjoy it. Uh And I couldn't really find good words to describe how I feel when I'm actually teaching students, when I'm standing in front of the class and I'm actually teaching, especially that feeling when sometimes you really get it, that when all eyes are on you, when you can rule the classroom based on your next words and your next intonation, your tone of voice, your pauses, and you can just feel everybody's just focus on you, that whole energy. And then I was recently at this random barbecue talking to this teacher. She was a high school teacher that spent her whole life doing it. And she said, I feel complete. And that's exactly mm-hmm. how I feel. I feel complete when I'm standing in front of the classroom. Like This is all that I have been training to do. And that was kind of a surprising realization, just how much I care about it and how much I actually enjoy it and how much I take from it. That mm-hmm. when no matter what happens in my life, if I'm going to teach, I'm going to be there and deliver. It's interesting to see how the students work with each other and what kind of encouragement they need. Because mm-hmm. sometimes you need to basically get this, get to know the student personally, perhaps talk to them about something completely irrelevant, their football team or their family or something, and then they are going to be more likely to participate. And uh, sometimes you have to... Uh, separate the students and make them work with each other, not necessarily be their closest friends that they would always sit next to each other, but you actually forcefully mix them up, make them talk to new people, make them come up with new ideas. Making everybody talk is always a challenge and it's always exciting when you succeed in doing that because there are always people that think they don't have anything to say, which is generally not true. They have plenty to say. They just Mm -hmm. wouldn't do it. And that's something that I really try to learn how to do better and uh, I've been practicing by uh, teaching this undergrad class and I can tell that the third year I've been teaching it everything just went much more smoothly and I think was much more enjoyable for the students as well as for um, the instructors than the first year we were teaching it. So I'm curious given how interested you are in mentorship and teaching yourself who have been some of the most influential mentors in your own life in your own career? Hmm, That's a very good question. I had a fantastic biology teacher in high school uh-huh. She was university professor who decided that the students that are coming to the university don't get good enough biology training. So she became a teacher. She became international baccalaureate teacher, the only first and so on in Lithuania. And uh, um, she just really gave herself to the job and made us do all kinds of crazy experiments, made us do tons of lab work, made us work in teams and made us everybody think, which is quite rare, especially in Lithuania, when you're thinking about learning natural sciences. A lot of it is memorization. The fact that I had to think for my four years of high school was amazing. And she accepted the fact that I was the only person in the whole school who wanted to learn biology at higher level in international baccalaureate class, which meant she had to give me two extra lessons every week just to me 
I was the only wow. student and she wasn't getting paid extra because she didn't have enough students. So I was the only student and she just did it. And it was wonderful. There was one time when we had some sort of a heating problem. It was winter in Lithuania and we were just sitting in the classroom and uh, we made uh, tea in the beaker on a hot plate and uh, <laughs> covered ourselves in a lot of sweaters and we're just sitting in front of the hot plate and, you know, reading about, I think, something like uh, epigenetics uh -huh. the, from the textbook. And it was really amazing. And that is somebody that really inspired me to be that kind of a mentor to the next set of students. Well, I think we should move on to our game. This is a game that we are calling Not My Field. Uh -huh. um, and we are going to read you the titles of three papers, uh -huh. one of which is a real paper, uh -huh. the other of two we entirely made up. Okay. So let's begin. Uh -huh. All right, question number one. Option A, men who watched Star Wars as children are more likely to be biased against the obese. <laughs> Mate choice in pigs as a function of diet. A comparative meta-analysis of garbage consumption. That's option two. Option uh -huh. three, the role of auditory cues in modulating the perceived crispness and staleness of potato chips. <laughs> One of these three is a real study. Star Wars. Star Wars. You think Star Wars? A? Uh -huh. Option A? Okay. Well, let me read you a little bit of the abstract. We investigated whether the perception of the crispness and staleness of potato, <laughs> oh chips, potato chips can be affected by modifying <laughs> the sounds produced during the biting action. All right. So question two. So this is option A. Shape of a ponytail and the statistical physics of hair fiber bundles. Option uh -huh. B. Distributions of topological parameters of randomly occurring knots suggest a common formation mechanism in both electrical wiring and spaghetti. Or option C, a new approach to studying feline night vision, the wall bump test. <laughs> um, oh, God. Okay. So hair bundles or knots or uh, uh, clumsy cats. Um, <laughs> hair bundles? All right, I'll read you from the abstract of the real paper. Uh, a general continuum theory for the distribution of hairs in a bundle is developed, treating individual fibers as elastic filaments with random intrinsic curvatures, applying this formalism to the iconic problem of the ponytail. Wow. That is a That's amazing. Paper about I am quite glad I don't wear my hair in a ponytail because now <laughs> I would be thinking exactly what is happening in there. Compressibility. Okay, so our third set of titles. So, so finally, at the moment, you are at one question correct, one mm -hmm. question wrong. Let's see, this is for the game. Okay. So, A, does garlic protect against vampires? An experimental study. <laughs> or B, a quantitative study of optimum fruit consumption for health benefit. Is one a day really enough? Or C, aw shucks, evidence of a correlation between oyster consumption and sexual history. Wow. Okay. Let's see. Uh, fruit? The one a day really enough? <laughs> Well, this is a bit of a trick question, I'm afraid. Um, from the abstract, vampires are feared everywhere, but the Balkan region has been especially haunted. <laughs> Garlic has been regarded as an effective prophylactic against vampires. We wanted to explore this alleged effect experimentally. Owing to the lack of vampires, we used leeches instead. <laughs> I was like, vampire bats? But they don't. So they, they did some very careful experiments, and they concluded that the traditional belief that garlic has a prophylactic properties is probably wrong. The verse, reverse may be, in fact, be true. The leeches, in fact, preferred the garlic hand to the non-garlic hand. And, uh, and the study indicates that garlic is possibly attracted to blood-sucking um, organisms, and therefore, uh, to avoid a Balkan-like development in Norway, restrictions on the use of garlic should be considered. <laughs> this is in the Brilliant. Norwegian journal uh, Tidskur Norlegeforen. 
I absolutely love that. I hope it wins the Ig Nobel Prize this year. <laughs> All right. Well, you got one question out of our three. Not enough to win our prize, of which there is none. Uh, <laughs> but it'll, okay. it'll have to be next time. So actually, we've been talking about a lot of really interesting things about your teaching and your history and how you got to where you are. But can you tell us a little bit about the research that you've been doing into how astrocytes regulate the brain's immune response following stroke? Okay, so I will start with why would we bother studying how to regulate the immune response in the brain? And the point is that when you have a stroke or any kind of injury or even brain infection, some cells um, will die because of that initial insult. You got hit on the head, your blood vessel bursts, you got infected with a parasite. Those are going to kill some cells. Those dead cells have to be removed from the brain to make the remaining cells fare better. That's what the inflammatory response does. Now, the problem is that inflammatory response also can go haywire and start killing the remaining living cells, which happens about the first, let's say, the time period of days to weeks after the insult, after the initial injury, and can do a whole lot of damage to the brain. So it's necessary, but it has to be contained and limited. And brain has some idea about how to contain and limit the immune response. After all, after stroke, we don't have the whole brain um, horribly inflamed. It's just the region around stroke. And it doesn't go on for the rest of the person's life. It goes on for a couple of weeks. But in fact, the inflammation still is generally too strong and could be limited even further to help the patient. Now, if you study how brain limits the inflammation, we can use the mechanisms that are already exist in the brain to find ways to help this process of limiting inflammation that would help the patient recover better. So you want to harness the tools the brain already right. has for limiting that inflammation. That is really important because instead of trying to just introduce something completely novel in the brain, it is well, it's also interesting from the basic science perspective, how does brain limit inflammation? But it is much easier and uh, has a potential of much fewer side effects if you are using the tools and the mechanisms that, that the brain already has. So if the basic idea that is that you want to sort of turn down this inflammatory response, right. why has our brain developed a sort of overreaction? Well, some of these insults would generally lead to the organism dying. So sort of there's no good evolution based on that. It's just people don't die now. For example, a lot of what happens in traumatic brain injuries is just people are surprisingly not dying now, so we have to figure out how to actually help them recover. And some of it is because the alternative would be far, far worse. So the brain probably sort of overdoes the inflammation. And it is fairly good in limiting the inflammation in terms of space, but it could still do better in limiting the inflammation in terms of time because it takes a while for some, let's say, pro-inflammatory response to go down and anti-inflammatory response to go up. And the way that the brain is constructing a lot of the anti-inflammatory response is usually combined with something called scarring. So if you can imagine scarring on anywhere else in the body, that also happens in the brain. And the same process, the same pathways regulate both a reduction of inflammation and increase in scarring, which is actually a problem because excessive scarring then prevents, let's say, new neurons from uh, sending out the processes. What so it's actually pretty bad. What kind of scarring are you talking about? I'm talking mostly about astrocytic scarring. So astrocytes are sort of auxiliary brain cells, that which are the ones that I'm studying, which are connected to the neurons, connected to vasculature, connected to inflammatory cells, so can actually regulate multiple systems at the same time time. 
and that their more anti-inflammatory properties are usually combined with forming a scar. And the anti-inflammatory properties are good, the forming a scar properties are pretty bad. Can we find a signaling that would deal with their anti-inflammatory properties but would not affect the scarring? So that's exactly the type of signaling that turned out to be the signaling that I study, which is this one specific cytokine, so a signaling molecule that tells astrocytes to limit the inflammation, to prevent it from spreading to healthy brain areas in either stroke or infection, but does not affect the scar formation, does not increase the scar formation very usefully, because that means inflammation will be down and new neurons can still grow because they won't be impeded by a scar. I'm looking at specifically the inflammation part of that signaling, and we take it out in a mouse model, and we see that mice are abnormally inflamed. Let's say they have a particularly bad inflammation given the same insult as the wild-type mice or their stroke or infection, and that makes them fare worse because excessive abnormal inflammation kills a lot of extra brain cells and makes the recovery worse. So it is sort of proving making the mouse fare worse when you take something out, but then you know that that something is, in fact, a useful mechanism. And then, of course, the idea is how to use that very same mechanism to help a patient. So one of the ideas is to sort of get a sense of the separate functions that these immune cells and astrocytes have and be able to separately regulate them based on what you think is going to be the Absolutely. most helpful. And also figure out when it is important, so what timing we're talking about, because perhaps the way to regulate inflammation really is to cut it shorter, to make it shorter. So you want it to be as strong as it is already, but you want it to end you know, at 24 hours rather than 72 hours after a stroke, something like that, because by 24 hours, all the dead cells are gone already, maybe. This is not precisely true, but you can imagine it as a simplification. But all the bad effects of the excessive inflammation are not quite there yet. How to make the system, sort of tweak the system to the optimal levels of recovery. There's another project that you're working on, which involves brain parasites and zombie mice. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Okay, so that's how we study the infection part. The same idea of how brain controls inflammation, how astrocytes control inflammation in response to some sort of insult. The some sort of insult in this case is infection using a parasite. It's an intracellular parasite called toxoplasma. And it infects about 15-20% of the world's population. But if your immune system is working properly, it is quenched and inactive. If it is not working properly, such as in AIDS patients, it becomes activated and is in fact the main cause of one of the major causes of death in AIDS patients. So that's why we study it. Now, how do you infect a mouse with something like toxoplasma? Well, you have to feed it an inactive, quenched form of parasites in the mouse's stomach. They're going to escape and infect the new mouse. How do you get the quenched form of parasites? You take it from the brains of the mice that have been infected before. Where do you get the mice that are infected with the toxo? Take a bunch of mice that you order from Jax or something. You get toxoplasma parasites, the active form, and you inject them IP. So, so can, inject you them can into their order stomach. toxo parasites from the internet um, or something? <laughs> you can most certainly grow them in the lab. It's all know, in I'm biohazard sorry. facility. I'm not quite sure if you can order them online, but you can pro- you can most certainly get them from one lab to the other. So, so they, someone at Stanford already studies toxo, so they already yes. had it. So they tackled this sort of bizarre question. Yes. That. The part of beer to get toxo parasites, yes, you find a lab that studies toxo, such as the Boothroyd lab at Stanford, <laughs> which are our wonderful collaborators, which did this whole bit of wonderful infecting the mice. So you inject the mice with active parasites first. Then the active parasites will travel to the mice brain. Then they will uh, be quenched by a normally working immune response and form cysts. Then you can take the brains of these mice, smush them up, 
count how many cysts they have, and for example, feed the amount of brain that has 100 cysts per mouse to your new experimental mouse cohort. Why is feeding brains to mice a better way of, of getting toxo infection than, than injecting them well, with because, Tosmo? Because now you have cannibal zombie mice and not just zombie Well, mice. obviously that is an incredibly important benefit, but I, I, I'm <laughs> guessing that Egg Glass is a better answer. <laughs> um, uh, so oral ingestion, basically ingestion is the way uh, both people and mice naturally get oxoplasma. Uh. So it's closer to the natural way. Also, if you have... Basically, injection causes a particularly strong immune response to toxo. So if you have the unfortunate mouse that behaves by giving an excessively strong immune response in the first place, it's way too inflamed. But then what's going to happen when it gets injected, it dies. And you can't really study what happens in that mouse very well. You want them to be alive. So instead, you end up making zombie mice. Okay, so, but did, did, is this a is this a standard protocol in the yes. field? This is a standard. It is protocol. a standard protocol in the field. I feel like we, we we've missed over something, which is why are these called brain control parasites? Why are these zombie mice? Well, you should by all means talk to Patrick House about that, who is somebody that actually studies how it affects mouse behavior. And Toxoplasma has an interesting behavioral phenotype, which is it makes mice and rats attracted instead of scared of cat urine smell. So they become much more likely to be eaten by a cat. And parasite becomes much more likely to get into the cat. Now, parasite wants to go into the cat because only in cat organism it can divide sexually and it can be released in a new form called oocyst, which allows the parasite to reach a more genetic variability. The but, cat is the perfect environment. So cat is what's called a definitive host which is basically the perfect environment, the only environment in which parasite can add more genetic variability to itself by reproducing sexually, which is really important in terms of evolution. So that's why Toxo makes rats and mice attracted to cats, and it does control their behavior, by obviously by controlling their brain. Why does the Toxo want to be in the mice? Why, wouldn't, why doesn't it just stay in the cats? There's something to be said about a parasite infecting a very, very wide range of organisms, and Toxo is particularly good. It's particularly nonspecific. It infects every single warm-blooded animal. And that is really good because even when it's not in the definitive host, it can be in any other kind of host and sort of ride out the bad times. So, for example, a lolling cat population. If a parasite is highly specific to its host, then once host dies out because of something completely unrelated to parasites, the parasite is gone. That is a very bad evolutionary strategy. So humans have toxo as well. Humans can have toxo. As I said, uh, 15 to 20% of the world's population has toxo. More than 50% of Lithuanians have toxo, and barely enough, I don't have toxo because I had to get a blood test. <laughs> Does it make people like cats? There is no good science uh, showing that it makes people do absolutely anything different unless people get AIDS, in which case it kills them. Otherwise, there is some ridiculous pseudoscience showing that it makes people be more risk attractive, I guess, risk takers, which is really not very well believed or very well conducted, but it's quite an amusing study. There's not a great interest probably like by the military for using toxoplasmosis to control people's behavior. People can rest. <laughs> our, think... our, our listeners can rest assured that they are not being mind controlled. It's probably much easier to be mind-controlled by a particularly convincing speaker on a podcast than to be controlled <laughs> by infecting people with toxum. Yes. Okay, Egla, so Facebook tells me that you have a new plan, uh, which is to do something new that begins with each and every letter in the alphabet. Is exactly. That, is this true? So, so what is the next letter that you hope to cross off your list? 
Let's see. So I am going to cross off something along the lines of radio for the R because this is the first time I'm in a radio studio and I am very excited about that. This morning I woke up and I was like, oh, I should probably put on some nicer shirt or something. I'm like, it's radio. <laughs> okay. It's, it's radio. non-live radio. You can do anything yeah, you want. Yeah, I know. <laughs> now, um, you could cross off P instead for podcast if you wanted. No, I am learning to program in Python. That's, <laughs> happen- that's happening that uh, next yeah. week and I'm learning programming and uh, um, the first time I ever coded in anything was about a month ago when I learned R and I fell in love with it. Wait, so you're using C for coding and P for programming? I don't know about They're that. They're different no. kinds. The Python part. And are you using R for R? Absolutely not. No, radio, <laughs> using obviously. radio for today for R. Um, then the next bit that's coming up is uh, hopefully spelunking, which is where I'm going to take my husband to do. All right, so I think that's about all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for speaking with us today, Egla. Thank you for inviting me. And thank you all for listening. Brains and Bourbon is a production of Neurite West. This episode was produced by Forrest Coleman, Erica Seigneur, and myself, with production help from Leslie Chang. Special thanks to KZSU Studio at Stanford, where this program was recorded. For more information about Brains and Bourbon and Neurite West, please visit our website at neuritewest.stanford.edu spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E West. (laughs) Thanks for the sound effect. (laughs) I tried.